Why aren't more young professionals choosing the advice Why industry? Why women staying in advice? In a job that you're more passionate about female in the financial industry, there are four Attracting males. Attracting best graduates to the financial advice what industry. practices and industry partners do? The most important thing is to have the discussion. Welcome to Her Advice. Join us as we speak with inspiring and diverse leaders within the Australian advice industry. Listen in as we examine how we can encourage future leaders and continue to see the financial advice industry thrive and be inspired as experts reflect on what the future of financial advice could be. Welcome, I'm Tara Sutton, State Director for Queensland at BT Financial Group. Before we begin today, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording and pay our respects to elders, both past and present. Today, I'm joined by Sharon McClafferty, CEO of Slipstream Group. Thanks for joining us today, Sharon. Hi, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. We should explain that you're not a financial planner, but you do work with more financial planners than anyone else I know. Sharon, can you tell us all a little bit more about the work you do at Slipstream and why you love working with financial advisors? So Slipstream Group was founded by myself and my business partner, Scott Charlton, in 2015. We currently work with about 90 firms around Australia, and those firms are accounting, financial advice, or multidisciplinary firms. So we provide coaching. We have seven coaches who have all owned, operated, and successfully exited their own financial services business. And then that's all we do. So we're quite transparent in that we have nothing else to sell. We are just in the corner of the business owner, helping them live their best life. And I guess part of the reason we love working with financial advisors is we actually get to see them transform from advisors to entrepreneurs to, to successful business owners. I think financial advice is still quite a cottage industry, which I think is a fantastic thing in terms of the career potential for young advisors and young female advisors to step into the shoes of a business owner. The other reason I like working with financial advisors is there is a bit of hypocrisy often. So they're often working really, really hard, not earning enough and helping people, advising people on how to live their best lives. So I love undoing that hypocrisy. And it goes even to how they structure their own days. Like the bit about the job that they often love, they're only spending 20% of their time doing that. So being able to have them have many, many more great days at work, earn more money and themselves live a better life. I just think that undoes some of that sitting across from really successful people and helping them live their best lives. So there's tons of reasons why we work with financial advisors. And I think the biggest one is because we've got eight years of successful results. I love that. Helping them live their best life. Is that the official Slipstream Group motto? Hilariously, on the back of my business card for a really long time, it said, more fees from fewer clients. <laughs> so it does what it says on the tin. I tell you what, that that is a surefire way to a better life. Okay. So you're currently helping over 90 businesses increase efficiencies improve their internal workings, as well as better serve their clients, i.e. live their best lives. I know that you work with female-led advice firms. Do all of those advice practices look the same? I actually this morning thought, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and look at every female-owned and led advice business that we work with 
so that I could actually have some data on this question. And even I was surprised at the diversity of what those businesses look like. So we've got a female-led advice firm that I would say is a veteran of the industry, owned her business for over 20 years. I've got a female advice business that sits within a very large accounting firm, and that accounting firm is solely owned by men. Where I have some similarities is I've got a couple of female-led advice businesses, almost half a dozen, where their licensee, dealer group, suppliers have been telling them repeatedly for 10 years that they're the best, that they're wonderful and everything they do is wonderful and they keep promoting, externally promoting these people as leaders of the industry. And when we uncovered their actual financial performance, not only were they not leaders of the industry, they were thoroughly in the bottom quartile in terms of their own financial performance. And so that's where I have this similarity. Lots of suppliers telling female-led advice businesses that they're wonderful. They don't have enough comparison points to realize that the actual scoreboard, you know, their P&L, their balance sheet is not wonderful, you know, and they're almost being used as marketing tools. So that is one thing I did uncover this morning that is similar. But back to my list, one of our top five highest EBIT businesses is a solo-owned female advice business. She is three times the size revenue and profit of when she started with us five years ago. And she started with us with a single problem, which is I would like to have a baby and I'm in my late thirties and this entire business revolves around me and I can't stop the business to have children. What do I do? And the answer for her, which is not always the answer for everyone, but the answer for her was to scale. So she's actually, you know, got two employed advisors in there. Her life is very different from the six-day-a-week that she used to work, and she's doing $1.9 million of revenue on a margin of 46% after partner salaries. I cannot tell you the diversity in this set. We have two females who led a really small advice business. When they started with us, it was 400 k They're at $2 million now, and they've done that journey while having babies, while taking long service leave, while going to trips to Europe. So I've got the whole gamut of what an advice business looks like. And these just happen to be the female-led businesses. Just back to your initial comment around that cohort that are being marketed to and being told that they're the best of the best. Two questions are, why do you think they're being told that? And then the second question is, how did they take the feedback when Sharon said, look, you're actually not all you cracked up to be, but I'm here to help. So I've always said that Slipstream works with award-winning firms. It's just that they won the awards before they started working with us. So I think a lot of the awards handed out to women, men, business leaders, and otherwise are based on some pretty dodgy data. So we currently look after 90 firms and we track their financial performance every single month. Before we start working with anyone, we always get their financials. So I have had the privilege over the last 12 years where I've seen the P&Ls of over a thousand firms. And then I find out that XYZ firm won this award. And I think, what? That is a break-even firm at best. And they've taken the stage, held up this trophy, and other people are looking at them saying, wow, I wish I could be like you. And I've seen their P&Ls thinking, I'm so glad I'm not like you. 
So I don't think it's a female only problem, but because of this women in finance awards, women in advice awards, there's so many awards that want to have a case study female led firm to promote. And I find lots of the criteria for those awards have nothing to do with the personal success of the leader. So it doesn't have anything to do with their own uh, business financial performance or how their you know, life is structured, whether they're actually living the life that they want to live. They're often criteria around servicing clients and things like that, which is great, but that's part of the problem. To the question of how did they take it, they knew. When we start working with award winners, it's often really soon after they win the award. So I have received text messages at 10 o'clock at night, long-winded text messages saying, none of it's true. I'm working seven days a week. I'm going to burn out. Can you help? So it's not that we're revealing this information to them. It's just that they're coming to terms with the reality is not the one that they want. So certainly with one of them that I suggested that their financial performance was below market and below where they should have been, I had to bring the goods. So I had evidence because they had been told for five straight years by their dealer group that they were in the top quartile, top 10% performer. And I think that comes back to be really careful about who you compare yourself to because you don't want to be a top 10% performer in the bottom quarter. So just having data that can be relied upon so that you compare yourself to a cohort of firms where you aspire to be. And in terms of the 90 businesses that you work with, what percentage of your firms are led by women? I'd say we'd be about 20% in the financial advice side of our client base. And overall, it'd probably be around 25% because we have a few more female-led accounting firms. And from your perspective, what would more women in leadership look like in the financial advice industry? Tara, I think it would look like more Australians getting financial advice. I just think it would look like a industry that has more diversity to offer our diverse population of people. So I had the privilege of speaking to a chief people officer in a large kind of corporate version of financial advice. And I love innovation in terms of policy and opportunity. And this CPO has developed a flexible employee value proposition. So we often talk about employee value propositions and someone might be offering a nine-day fortnight or extra super or, you know, whatever. This leader in financial advice has documented a flexible employee value proposition. So you essentially, you know, in some years of your life, you might say, I want an extra week's annual leave. In other years, you might want extra super. In other years, you might want a nine-day fortnight or some other version of flexibility. And her point is that during her career to get to where she has got to, not all years look the same. And so the idea that all people in that large business want a four-day work week or a nine-day fortnight or are prepared to give up some salary to get this, she said that might be true for some people in some years. And so I love this concept of the flexible employee value proposition. And I have to question whether if it was a man in the chief people officer, they would have had the same perspective on living those different versions of her corporate life. So I love the innovation that comes from having different perspectives at the table in leadership. 
that is a really nice segue. I know that you run a really successful business. The staff in your business love working for you and love working for the Slipstream group. And every time I see a Slipstream conference and the flurry of amazing photos and places that you and your team go, I absolutely get FOMO. So I think that you are a really good person to answer the question around what could advice practices do to retain and attract more women? Tara, I should tell you the backstory of some of the stuff that we do at Slipstream Group. So this is the first business that I have owned, but I have worked in financial services since 2004. So I worked for Deloitte in London in project management. I then went and sat on a trading floor for an investment bank in London for four years. And I had the privilege of working for a Scandinavian investment bank. So I saw how the Scandies treat their team and we got paid more superannuation. We got more holiday entitlements. Norway has 14 and a half public holidays a year. So I, I had this strange part of my career, which was essentially working for a Scandinavian bank. So I'm in Australia, but I have this Scandinavian version of employee value proposition. So how can people have these happy businesses? I essentially have designed our business around a business that I would like to be an employee of. So I think everyone in your business is a volunteer. You have to pay them, but they are a volunteer because they could just cross the road and work for someone else. So let's start treating people like adults because they could equally leave and upgrade their life unless you've really thought about the business that you're running. So I have these six pillars that are non-negotiable at Slipstream and really non-negotiable at our client level as well. So the number one is the business plan. The reason is if you want to employ adults, tell them about the future. If you can't answer the question, where will this business be in three or five years, then why should you keep them? They're investing part of their career in your business. So tell them the plan. The second pillar is the organizational chart. We find this is complete vaporware at so many firms. And what happens is it ends up that there's lots of gray areas. So either two people are responsible for a task and therefore no one is responsible or no one is responsible for a task. Organizational charts are not just the charts. It's the roles, responsibilities, and making sure there's a person on every task, but not two people. Policies, so that sounds really HR, but policies are around clarity. Tell people about the holiday leave, parental leave, working from home policies. Just be clear. Everyone says people don't like change. That's actually not true. People don't like a lack of clarity. So the more clarity you can provide your team, the better lives they can live because they don't have to say to their significant other, oh, I'm not sure if I can stay around for the plumber this morning because I don't know if I'm allowed. Number four is a scoreboard, which is really challenging. How about we tell our people how the business is going? Ambitious people want to win. If you don't provide quality team members with a scoreboard, then how do we know if we're winning or not? So if you want that discretionary effort of, I wanted to use a sporting analogy, but as soon as I went to grab one, I realized I don't watch sport or have any analogies, but you know what I mean? <laughs> people are going to try a little bit harder. When I talk about a scoreboard, let's just talk about KPIs that people can see. And number five is participation in decision-making. Employees want to be involved in decisions that are going to impact them. So it might be quarterly 
we sit down with our team and talk about the projects and the prioritization of projects. Most good ideas in businesses do not come from the leaders. You know, we all know that we've all been at the bottom rung of, of the corporate ladder or of a business and you see all these issues. So if you don't have structures for your team to participate in prioritizing projects in your business, then you're just going to miss out on all of this low hanging fruit that exists. We also ask our team to involve, you know, non-financial team members, involve the person sitting at the front desk because their perspective on challenges is different and they're going to bring something fresh to the table. The final element of this six pillars is personal relationships. The fundamental aspect of looking after your team is knowing them. You have to get to know people before you can ask the question, how are you? Because if you don't understand who they are as a person and what they value, you just don't have a baseline. So some of the things, Tara, that you see us do on social media is we do have two team retreats per year. They are mostly facilitated retreats where we'll, we'll call in a third-party person to facilitate the formal aspect. But the personal relationships are board games after dinner, making breakfast together, playing volleyball in the pool coordinating living in one of these big houses. So our team get to know each other in an environment outside our office. The question of how are they becomes a different question. And I think if you want to retain people in your business, the number one thing I would do is get to know them and what they value. Tell us about your annual leave policy at Slipstream. So it is different for different team members depending on their level here. We have 17 people in the business. So the coaches have eight weeks annual leave. Some of our leadership team have five or six weeks annual leave, but every single person in this business can take six weeks unpaid annual leave every single year if they choose to. The idea that one of my team members wants to go to Europe for two and a half months, for example, and would have to quit their job in order to live that aspiration out, I just go, that's dumb. Why would I do that? So if people's personal situations mean that they can travel for two and a half, three months a year, the only thing getting in the way of that travel is this job, well, I can solve that. And that comes back to clarity. So it's not a case of approval. That is pre-approved because I don't want this job getting in the way of you living your life. Sharon, what's the one thing that you see women bring to their clients and to their businesses that's unique to women? I'm just going to go back to a different perspective. So that perspective could be motherhood. It could be climbing a corporate ladder as a woman, could be the gender pay gap. It could be lots of different things, but it is a perspective that females bring to their clients and to the businesses that they work with. I want young women to go, I can do that. I can be that. This is an industry I want to be a part of. A lot of people would say, it's been tough. We've been put through the ringer. We've had regulation after regulation change. We've had a mass exodus of advisors. We know it's not all too hard to stay. But is the future bright for financial advisors entering this industry? Well, if we just pair it right back to Economics 101, supply and demand, I think that people entering this profession now may have nailed the timing. 
it just doesn't stack up. The demand and need for financial advice is far higher than the supply side and and that situation right now is still getting worse. So I think just on Economics 101, it's pretty exciting. I love it. Sharon, straight back to the numbers. <laughs> but also this remains a profession where you have lots of career path choices. So you could choose to climb the corporate you could choose to be the star advisor in a, in a business. You could equally choose to start your own business. And where I've seen that done really successfully is where someone might have a passion for a particular type of client and you know how to help those people. That's really exciting. It remains a profession where you can start your own business and double down on the thing that you care about the most. And that means there's so many career choices open to young people in this profession. Sharon, in the first episode of this podcast, we speak to Julia Newbold and she talks about, you know, you've got to see it to believe it. You've got to see a woman or a person that you aspire to so you believe that you can do it. Was there someone in your life that you saw that made you believe? At 28 years old, I was offered a partnership in the investment bank. And there were two women that were ahead of me in that corporate structure. The one that I was closest to was in her mid-40s and was single with no children. And the other woman that was ahead of me had an eight-year-old son who had a driver and a personal trainer. And I was not convinced that that mother was able to spend much time with her son. So yes, I was influenced, Tara. I looked at my future that was on offer and it was a lot of money on the table and it was a life guaranteed to join the three comma club. And I decided that I didn't want the life of those women. So I moved back to Australia and I have two gorgeous girls who are seven and nine. And I decided that I can help people live a life of their choosing and maybe be a bit more deliberate with the decisions that they're making. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for your insights today. It was really great to hear stories of the variety of female lead advice firms, and we hope that there are more stories of success to come. Personally, you have been the person that I've looked to forging your own career. So I just wanted to personally say thank you for that. And I do think you are an example of a woman in this industry that has made it and continues to grow and continues to want to do the right thing by people and as you say help people live their best lives thank you tara it's been such a pleasure thank you for having me this podcast is for advisor use only the opinions expressed in this podcast are the presenter's personal opinions bt accepts no responsibility for the content of the podcasts comments may not be attributed to bt or other participants without prior permission past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance